Administrative professionals run the show in offices and schools, helping everything run smooth. Administrative Professionals Day is this Wednesday, the one day a year set aside to honor their value. Judy's Floral Design is open for non-contact delivery because your administrative professional might be working from home and some blooms to brighten their personal space will be a spirit lifter and a daily reminder of your appreciation. Call 507-645-0008 or shop online at judysfreshfloraldesign.com. The Quarterback Club in Northfield is top-notch for good food served fast. The Quarterback Club always has daily specials that can't be beat. Today, Wednesday, you can choose from one of three specials. A hot turkey commercial with mashed potatoes, gravy, and vegetable. Or choose the shrimp dinner or the shrimp basket. The Quarterback Club has the best barbecue ribs, roasted chicken, and flame-broiled burgers in town. Be sure to check them out for breakfast, too, serving Monday through Saturday. Always available for dine-in or take-out. For good food, good service, and good friends, it's the Quarterback Club in Northfield. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my. I'll find experts who can address your topic. On February 1st of this year, the Burmese military once again staged a military coup, toppling the democratically elected government of the nation of Myanmar. Nobel laureate and Myanmar's president Da Aung San Suu Kyi was arrested, along with numerous members of her cabinet and members of parliament. Protests against the military dictatorship have resulted in clashes between civilians and security forces and many people have been killed, including children. Here with us today is an expert on the situation, and we're going to learn about both the historical foundations of today's strife in Myanmar and also about the challenges faced today and in the near term by the people of the nation. We might even explore options for the Biden administration and how America might assist in the crisis. Professor Tun Mint is an associate professor of political science at Carleton College. He was a student leader of the 1988 democracy movement in Myanmar, and is a widely respected expert on the politics and society of the country. Professor Mint served as a member of the technical advisory team of Myanmar's Federal Constitution Drafting Coordinating Committee. He is a founder and member of the editorial board of the Independent Journal of Burmese Scholarship, director of the Public Memory of Myanmar Digital Archive, and has contributed expert analysis on Burmese politics for media outlets including PBS, Minnesota Public Radio, Radio Free Asia, CNN, and the BBC. Tun Mint is also co-founder of Myanmar Mutual Aid, a group that seeks to further democracy in Myanmar. His opinion piece in the New York Times on March 9th spells out some potential policy approaches the Biden administration might choose to engage with the military junta in Myanmar. Professor Tun Mint, welcome to National Security This Week. Good morning, John. Uh, We have a lot to cover, uh, and so we should just jump, jump right in. Uh, but before we get into sort of the discussion of the current crisis, I think our audience would probably benefit from a, a little background knowledge uh, on, on Myanmar. Can you please tell us about the ethnic groups that live in Myanmar? Where where do they live? How large are the groups? And, and maybe a bit about the relationships between the groups? Yeah. So uh, official account of uh, numbers of ethnic groups is 135. Wow. Um, but that doesn't include a lot of local dialects and local cultural groups. Uh, so that's uh, one. And in terms of the uh, population size, the Burman 
majority, which is Burman ethnic groups, is the majority, about 68%. Others, you know, call from that number. So that composition of uh, uh, ethnic group uh, was critical in 1948 when uh, Burmese independent movement leaders were negotiating with the British government to gain independence from uh, England. So uh, with that, there was a lot of disagreement, obviously, from that point on. Mm-hmm. And uh, Myanmar, uh, or Burma nowadays, uh, has been since uh, 1962 uh, the civil war, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, among the different ethnic groups against the central Burman-dominated military. Uh, so that that is ongoing civil war now. And as a consequences of that history, um, the struggle for democracy uh, is sort of quite challenging. And that challenge is uh, unique in different countries and in, in their own setting, right? And yep. now here in Myanmar, we are facing this crisis with the military uh, coming back to the forefront of their brute force. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, as you said, the, the Burman majority group uh, sort of controls most things. There are, there are some other ethnic groups uh, that, that we know of. Uh, what are some of the other, the larger ethnic groups? Yes, Kachin, uh, Mon, Rakhine, Aragon, Rakhine slash Aragon, all the Karen as well, KNU. Karen is also very large. And then you have uh, in the Northeast, uh, the United War, War State Army. In terms of military, they are probably the, the largest. Uh, the in terms of firepower among the ethnic uh, arms group, uh, the United War State Army is the largest. So that just in the military, uh, but other the in terms of ethnic population, large one are Mon, uh, Aragon, slash Rakhine, uh, mm-hmm. Kachin, and then Karen, and so these are these are big group. And then Shan is uh, also very big uh, in in, uh, in in Myanmar. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the military uh, seized control in 88 when you were in high school, I believe, if that's right. Uh, What prompted them to seize control in that year, and why did they retain control for so long? Yeah, so this is the third uh, coup in Myanmar's history or Burmese history. The first The one that just happened on February 1st was the the third. The one, yeah, that just happened on February 1st was the third coup. And the first one was in 1962. Okay. And this is 1962 was after 10 years of experimenting with the federal union among these different ethnic groups from 1948 to 1958. Okay. The minority ethnic groups began to realize the majority of the budget decision and resources that are allocated were for majority Burman ethnic areas like building schools and roads and so on. So ethnic minority leaders began to question the equality sort of uh, agreement or equity agreement among the ethnic group when they took independence from England, right? So in 1958, the crisis of unity, if you will, based on the budget, uh, financial resource allocation began to uh, start, uh, emerge in the political debate. And from 1958 to 1960, in two years, the democratically elected parliament at that time could not resolve that issue. And so the okay. military leader at the time was given a temporary power 
for two years from 60 to 62. And then the guy who was the military in charge, uh, the commander of chief in, in chief, basically decided after tasting two years of power and running the country as a quote unquote interior government, we could probably run the country as well. Okay. And therefore, probably with that personal experience and tested knowledge about running a country, he, Nguyen, General Nguyen, basically uh, started the coup in 1962. And that coup, 62 coup, went all the way to 1988 with a variation of different political ideology and uh, forming a Burmese Socialist Program Party, BSPP, in 1974. And from that point on, all the way to 1988, was uh, under their Socialist Party, one-party state, if you will. But it's that one party was under the military. So in 1988, I was a um, high school student. Um, I saw unjust condition of socioeconomic life among the people. Mm-hmm. And I decided to uh, organize um, a student movement with, along with all other students from all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so we overthrew Socialist uh, Party okay. uh, from the political uh, scene in Myanmar. But we uh, all Myanmar ended up with a new generation of military leader who staged a coup on September 18, 1988. Okay. So that coup, September 18, 1988, went on uh, under the military uh, leadership of the country and went on to until 2008. So in 2008, military uh, came up with their own constitution. They drafted the constitution for from 88 to 2008. And then they said, we have now a constitution. We're going to transit the country, uh, transform the country into what they call it disciplined democracy. And okay. so with that constitution, the first uh, democratic election was held in 2010. And this is when Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest. And she was not released and she was not allowed to run the election. Okay. But her... Uh, party uh, uh, participated in that, uh, not participated in that election either because she was under house arrest. So the military organized political party, uh, USDP, United Union Solidarity Development Party, USDP, which is the basically former military leaders uh, organized that party, and that party won't. So they run the country uh, as a sort of semi-military controlled democracy, semi-democracy from 2010 to 15. And then 15 election uh, was uh, election was every five years there will be election. So the 2015 election, the National League for Democracy Party, which is led by Dawn San Suu Kyi, mm-hmm. the party won okay. landslide. Yeah. And with that, and they started democratic, a true kind of state semi-democratic transition from 2015 to 2020. Okay. And that fifth year, uh, another election. So. November 8, uh, 2020, there was an election in Burma, which is a second democratic election. And that outcome was a landslide again, even better than 2015 uh, election that the National League for Democracy won, because the public knew that constitution need to be reformed, uh, oh, amended, yeah. because the military control majority of the government function and also 25% of men- members of uh, parliaments were elected automatically by the commander-in-chief. So oh. they wanted to uh, change all of those constitutional clauses. Okay. And so they gave the uh, overwhelming vote in November 8, and the military knew the constitution was going to be changed. So they knew that was written on the wall, and the parliament was about to begin at 9 a.m. on February 1st, 2021. Discussing a constitution. Discussing change. constitution, <laughs> starting this reform process. So the military stage a coup at 3 a.m. on okay. February 1st, um, uh, 2021. And that's a quiet 
rather quiet coup. Right. When so, it happened. So that's what triggered it is uh, the military knew that they were going to be basically boxed out in a democratic uh, way where the Constitution would be rewritten that they wouldn't retain as much automatic power, basically. Yes. The amendments that were proposed uh, were uh, 114 amendments. Uh, as early as January of 2020, those amendments were out already. And so by looking at that, um, those amendments, the three ministries uh, that were constitutionally assigned to or given to the military, military, uh, the Ministry of Defense, mm-hmm. uh, Ministry of Border Affairs, and Ministry of Interior. Three ministries were under the 2008 Constitution, under the control of the military, sure. both budget and actual functioning. Okay. So when you think about Ministry of Interior being uh, under the military, what that means is all the way down to the village level administration, the military decide budget and allocation and what type of project they would do, right? So total control. Total control, basically. Yeah, and yeah. so and then they control police and prisons. Mm-hmm. You name, right? Those are important part of their power, it's the size of their power. So uh, <coughs> the Aunsons the National League for Democracy were well prepared to uh, gradually reduce that power. Perhaps those three ministries should be given back to the people, civilian government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the there's another issue which is as I, as I said 25% of members of national parliament would be, under 2008 constitution, uh-huh. appointed by commander-in-chief, which right. is the military will pick his man to sit, his men to sit in the members of parliament. So the NLD, the National League for Democracy, was kind, trying to reduce in stages like 15% by this year. And so by 2030, the National League for Democracy aim at eliminating all of those uh, uh, 25% appointment from the members of parliaments of national parliament. And that, all of those were written on the wall, already written on the paper, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the reform process and military saw that this is a, a threat to their long-term established uh, political power in the country. It always seems to boil down in, in democracies to uh, uh, equity, justice, and equality. Uh, th- those are the things that seem to drive uh, a lot of behavior. Uh, yes. Yeah. Anyway, so for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Tun Mint, and we're discussing the current situation in Myanmar, uh, a nation formerly known as, as Burma. Uh, so, so Tun... What is the situation today? I mean, the the coup happened on February 1st. Uh, from what I've seen in the news, violence has continued to ramp up. Uh, can you give us a, sort of a sketch of what conditions are like on the ground? Yeah. So since February 1st, which is probably 79th or 78 days of the coup now, mm-hmm. all right, and the the military that I was at this point use the term, uh, the term attempted coup now because the coup has not been successful, right? Yeah. Because of uh, uh, several f- uh, forces or pillars that are supporting this democracy movement, one of which is a protest itself, a peaceful protest on the street at every corner of the country, you name it, from the Yangon, Mandalay, big cities to the small villages, uh, including in the ethnic uh, control area. And the protests are on every day going. That's number one. Number two is a civil disobedient movement, CDM movement, which is the government employees or civil servants are boycotting wow. to do any job 
with under the control of the military council. Okay. So they are crippling the military council's uh, day-to-day function like uh, administration or you name it, electricity and uh, telecoms and all of banking and all that. So this CDM movement is a second pillar that is uh, continuing. Uh, in, in fact, the movement is growing. The third pillar is these members of uh, elected members of parliament who are not less uh, arrested or detained. They have a group of people they organize and uh, call CRPH, uh, Committee for Representing Pidangzulhluto, which is a Pidangzulhluto is a nation of parliament. So CRPH is also running, if you will, a parallel government organization to organize uh, government. In fact, three days ago, they announced the formation of National Unity Government, NUG, which is a sort of federal uh, government uh, that is parallel to military council and military power now. So NUG is a s- sort of now trying to gain both uh, domestic uh, 100, 100% support, support and also international community support. So it's almost like a shadow government. Shadow government, yeah. yeah. So that is uh, the other pillar. And then the next pillar is the Arms Ethnic Organization or Ethnic Arms Organization, EAOs, which are the, the your first question about Xi'an, Mon, Kachen, Karen, Aragon, all of them have their armed group and it has been for past 59 years uh, engaging in this uh, military uh, warfare, insurgency, mm-hmm. and so on in their territory. So these ethnic arms groups are also now uh, the other pillar that is making the military council not able to function as it should be able to function. So about now we are going to go into 80 days and the military coup has not been a coup yet, a successful coup yet, because of these pillars and so on. So that is the situation. So num- numbers of arrest, we are now talking about nearly 3,000 counted. Uh, and then numbers of death, uh, violence in terms of that, and we are now talking about nearly 750 uh, uh, people. Um, I think closer to 800, and if you count several um, others that are not counted yet. So, and day-to-day violence is reaching to not just in the city where the protests are, but also in the small remote area of the country, like small villages in Zagain region and Kachin and Karen area and Xi'an, uh, even in Bago, which is uh, right next to Yangon, not far, only mm. 48 miles from Yangon. Wow. And even to in Bago, uh, last week you probably heard about 82 people in one day were killed right. in, in the city of Bago. Yeah. So, that level of violence and also day-to-day arrest, torture in public, on the street, torturing. I'm not talking even about bringing it to the cell or just, in the prison. They're just doing it right there. On the it's right there. And that, uh, and then the other is a burning of the uh, uh, houses now begin uh, about this past week. It's uh, creating chaos and also terrorizing the public uh, to basically give up what they are doing. And so this campaign is increasing day by day and hour by hour. Okay. Uh, what, what do you think, uh, I mean, you've seen this before, you're in contact with uh, with people uh, back in Myanmar. What's your prediction for what's going to happen uh, with this sort of failed coup? I mean, does the military continue to ramp up? Uh, it looks like the solidarity of the, the opposition seems to be pretty strong right now. Who's going to win? That's a really tough question to, uh, to, to really get a, a clear answer, obviously. And but the military's point of view, and they are, their stated position is clear, which is 
we are going to govern even if it's only the the post on this road, which are electric posts on the roads are left, and if we have to govern those posts, which we were. And the other the statement they make is that we have two friends in the world, which are Chinese uh, government and communist uh, CCP government and Russian government. So okay. uh, these two entities are going to be with us. These are our good friends. In fact, they have each announced they would uh, stand for the military. And so the leader of Myanmar military is saying that we, we were we will continue to do what we do, which is basically scorched earth campaign that they have began now already. And so that's one end. But the public is also not going to give up easily because yeah. the you know, number of death and suffering that they have been going through. And yet they are very peaceful, which is a very impressive uh, uh, social movement. In fact, this is the largest uh, democracy movement the world have ever seen in a more cr- the diverse and creative and, and powerful way. I do not no, in any history book, uh, that democracy movement that large, this large, is ha- had happened in the past in terms of the whole nation, mm-hmm. uh, all ethnic groups, uh, citizens from all uh, walks of life are engaging in peaceful, uh, well-organized protest against the army that was legitimate under the constitution about 80 days ago. Now is now the la- becoming almost behaving like the largest terrorist organization in the world. So mm-hmm. this is a pretty... Uh, pretty impressive in the sense of the democracy movement. So where would things go in terms of that? Uh, we we have yet to see. I mean, yeah, just don't know. Uh, once again, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, uh, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Tun Mint, and we're discussing the current situation in Myanmar. Uh, so that to follow up on that uh, a little bit, Tun, uh that that strikes me as incredibly uh, unique, as you just said. I mean, you have all these different ethnic groups, which I assume represent lots of different languages, lots yes. of different cultures, uh, lots of different religious beliefs. Yes, a- and yet they're all they've all come together in resistance, peaceful resistance for the most part, to the Burmese military junta that has taken control again. Yes, is that it is it is correct and impressive even further uh, if you think about 2007 the rohingya crisis in western Aragon state uh, western part of burma mm-hmm. uh, or myanmar and that crisis internationally was uh, a text known as a textbook case of genocide right mm-hmm. uh, so now the military that engaged in such uh, genocide uh, activities, uh, including burning the villages, uh, killing people, arresting, torturing on the street, Mm -hmm. used to happen on the corner or the border area of Burma, where mainly uh, ethnic minority controls area where the insurgency or rebellions were going on, right? Now, what we are seeing day-to-day in social media and global media is that it is happening right in the homes and living room of a city, the Burma majority ethnic people. So with that, what is really impressive is the now all Burman who can think and who can digest the information, what they are seeing, are beginning to see what had happened to minority ethnic groups is now coming to our living room. So it's an awakening. It is awakening. So with that awakening, my uh, one thing that I can positively think about from this crisis is that majority Burman who have this chauvinistic, nationalistic, extreme right-wing oriented type of view mm-hmm. about their position in a society should be paying attention to that the common enemy or common threat to both civil peace and civil democracy in Myanmar is 
the military dictators. Mm. And that is now as clear as you can actually read it on the wall written in Burma. Yeah. I think the public is behind that wall now, behind that uh, uh, heading, and I think they're quite united. And this is uh, quite impressive, as you put it. And so uh, the the case in Burma or the crisis in Burma need to be paid attention by the global leaders who care about freedom, democracy, and the function of uh, you know society. So I'm going to bring up, uh, Tun, I'm going to bring up your, the article you, you uh you drafted the opinion piece for the New York Times from from March ninth. Uh, the title was "The Country I Fled Needs Biden's Help Now." Uh, can you give us our, our listeners sort of a summary of the the points that you tried to make in this in this piece, recommendations to the Biden administration about what what the U.S. government could do to sort of intercede? Um, if we flip two countries, the United States of America and Union of Burma, in a two time frame or two dates, January 6, 2021, mm-hmm. and February 1, 2021. Right. Here, on the one hand, you have military leaders in February 1, 2021 in Myanmar mm-hmm. stage a pretty peaceful insurrection of the Myanmar parliament, which was about to convene at 9 a.m. Yeah. But they did it at 3 p.m. at 3 a.m. while these members of parliament were uh, sleeping in their quarters. And you see on January 6th, uh, the whole day on the crisis in the United States, mm-hmm. um, the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, if United States were governed by, or at that time, institutionally governed by, like, Myanmar situation, mm-hmm. both the President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will be in detention now. Right. They will be arrested. Members of parliament or United States senators and congressmen will be in, in, in the prison or detention now. Right. And Myanmar leader Don San Suu Kyi and Wu Emin, who will be president, will be issuing COVID vaccine plans and infrastructure, mm-hmm. budgets, and all the things that democracy is supposed to be doing. They'd all be held in prison. They will be held in prison. So the crisis in democracy, even though it's a thousand miles away from the United States, yeah. is the crisis of democracy in the world, mm-hmm. not just in the United States. So with that, President Biden on uh, February 10th, uh, make executive order uh, naming that the crisis in Myanmar is a threat to national security of the United States. And he used the term extraordinary threat, not just simple right. threat. What that means is uh, United States, uh, he himself having gone through almost a threat to his power, White House, like seeking the White House for the Biden, sure. I think he made the right step in there. And so I thought uh, United States can do further, and such as uh, targeted economic sanction, mm-hmm. uh, a globally uh, United Nations Security Council organized arms embargo, mm-hmm. and then perhaps now they should be thinking like no-fly zone for the Myanmar military to use airplane to bomb uh, ethnic villages in Myanmar. Much like uh, Operation Southern Watch in the southern part of Iraq you can think about Saddam Hussein from flying. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. things like that. So these are several series of things. And then the other is that since you have uh, uh, named by the executive order, this is a national uh, security threat to the United States, what then you are telling is that the Congress to do the uh, conf- investigation of the coup in Myanmar to find out why the coup happened, who are behind, why is the national security threat to the United States? And now the Congress has to do its work. And now with with the Biden administration's order, yeah. and I know the United States Senate had passed as resolution thirty five, and the House has thirty two. I think passed already. Um, so 
with that uh, uh, framework of um, policy, foreign policy that the United States is sort of uh, stepping into, uh, they they can do a lot more. Okay. So one of the interesting things that I've learned over the course of uh, of my career in in, in naval intelligence and uh, serving as a diplomat, uh, naval attaché in Finland and whatnot was that nothing happens in a vacuum, right? Uh, what's happening in, in Myanmar uh, is impacting and impacted by decisions made in countries around Myanmar and even all the way over here in, in the United States. How are neighboring countries in the region responding to the current crisis? And, and maybe we focus initially on just Thailand and, and Bangladesh. Uh, Thailand is now uh, having to uh, deal with the uh, people who are fleeing to Thai border area. And... Uh, Thailand had a history of that dealing with it in 1988. Similarly, yeah. about 20,000 uh, refugees. And, and although, you were one of them, I think. I was one of them, <laughs> if you count. So fled to Thai and Burma border area, and they had to sort of uh, humanitarian way help mm-hmm. uh, us and help now the people, them. And in uh, Bangladesh and India have a similar kind of situation. Bangladesh with the Rohingya crisis and India now in the northeast, uh, northwest corner of Burma. Okay. Um, it's a similar thing happening now people fleeing. So their responses has been just uh, typical uh, as in the past, you know, uh, helping these people. And, and Thailand started actually pushing back um, because that. Thailand yeah. is also under the military coup government, basically. Right. Right. And so uh, that's one. The other, uh, maybe probably when you make the point about would the quite common in the sense that things happen, not nothing in vacuum, is it the uh, Southeast Asian nation, uh, the group of uh, nation, 10 nations or 10 states in Southeast Asia. Uh, Singapore uh, play important role in Myanmar's uh, present economy and perhaps future too because Singapore has the largest foreign investment in Myanmar. And okay. the other is uh, uh, previous, before the coup, um, Myanmar government had a f- foreign central banks, uh, Myanmar central banks foreign reserve in Singapore and in the United States. United States, $1 billion in the New York uh, Federal Reserve Bank was frozen by the president's executive order on February 10th. Okay. But there's a $5.7 U.S. billion is in Singaporean private banks, not the government. And Singaporean government made that clarification when, <coughs> excuse me, the journalists started reporting Singapore's uh, foreign investment and foreign reserve in Singapore. Uh, government correctly said that we don't have any money from Myanmar, yeah. but the private uh, three banks in Singapore, according to the report and research, uh, found that they have 5.7 billion. Yeah, and, and, and I'm guessing that that was probably money uh, from military leaders that had been banked offshore. Is that right? That's a separate because this That's is the money more. from the central bank. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, this okay, is okay, Myanmar yeah. central. For you know, each central bank has to have a foreign reserve to make sure that their yeah. economy is in check. Okay. And a requirement by uh, so, but then you also have a former military leaders and their families and businesses that are uh, who are peacefully living in Singapore and who have a mansion and all kinds of things in Singapore, and that money we don't even know how much. I mean, right. maybe more than 5.7 billion. Who knows? I mean, since Nguyen's era, 1962. And one of the banks has a uh, relationship with the Myanmar economy way back all the way to 1940s. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, about, how about China? Uh, I, I know from, from my career that uh, uh, when the military, Boomer's military was in, in charge, uh, that there was a lot of m- movement on the part of the Chinese to position themselves, uh, align themselves with uh, the Burmese military. 
have the Chinese tried to move in again uh, to back the, the, the military uh, junta in this latest coup? At this point, we not, we haven't seen evidence yet of the ground-level Chinese uh, soldiers or foes. But we there are reports uh, one Kachin uh, conflict was uh, uh, at the height last week. Um, the Chinese uh, allowed Myanmar Air Force to use their airspace to kind of go around from the northern side of uh, Kachin State, which is basically inside China. Mm. And that report, why well, we could not confirm that. Okay. But largely, the Chinese role in, in term in addition to the military is this. China has a gas pipeline from the Aragon state, which is where the Rohingya crisis happened, all the way to Yunnan province. And China has a mining project and dam project that are investing in Burma, and including building city. And also the other is a seaport uh, port project, which would be a part of the global supply chain that they are uh, structuring. The Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative, part of it. And so... Uh, uh, we were talking uh, a, a lot of money here. And then between 2008 and 2018, Chinese uh, military saw about $1.3 billion worth of weapons and, and tanks and uh, military equipment to Myanmar. So they, they are also making money uh, from the defense industry in China out of Myanmar's uh, civil war or crisis. Mm-hmm. So Chinese are deeply into the economy and military affairs. Uh, so we just have a, a few more minutes left, uh, and I'll give you the the last word as our guest. What is it that uh, you'd like the American people to know about uh, Myanmar uh, situation today, or anything else you'd like us like like us to know? Um, as I already said, uh, a threat to freedom of individuals and their agency in Myanmar is simply a threat to democracy and freedom and agency of people who really care about democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, With that, uh, what uh, they can do is really pay attention, share uh, what you read, know about Myanmar, Burma, and make aware of the crisis in Myanmar, which is a pretty significant and very important crisis that's happening for uh, the future of the world order. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to leave your children with the uh, Russian-Chinese model of global order, or whether you want to leave the rule-based uh, international order that uh, United States play quite a big role, significant role since uh, Second World War uh, yeah. until now. And so the rule-based order that would maintain a level of civil peace and that would encourage a democracy around the world is under threat. That yeah. means your children's future is under threat. And so a simplest thing you can do is sharing information. The other thing that you can do is uh, donating to several uh, Myanmar democracy movement funds, including uh, mutualaidmyanmar.org. Go to there, and you can donate and support the protesters and the CDM uh, workers who are boycotting. And so Mutual Aid Myanmar is supporting these families to have uh, income, food, and medical help right now as the crisis is deepening. And the other is a call up to your uh, representative, congressmen, women, and senators uh, to implement the definition of a threat to national security of the United States Mm -hmm. meaningfully and factually, Mm -hmm. establish why the coup happened, just like President Biden wanted to know, and why it is a national security threat. Now, Maybe the government leaders might be preoccupied with the uh, uh, South China Sea crisis. Now, if you look at the between the South China Sea crisis and democracy crisis in Myanmar, I think 
democracy's crisis in Myanmar provide a very convenient and very easier door to contain the power of China, if you were to, if you would like to correct it, mm-hmm. or if you would like to sort of contain it. And so Myanmar crisis presents very good case for a global foreign policy that could be led by the United States. I know that uh, on our in our press uh, here in the United States, the uh, coverage of what's been happening in Myanmar is, is not very good. It's sporadic at best. Uh, what I have seen uh, in my research is that BBC does a pretty good job, and, and uh, interestingly enough, Al Jazeera uh, provides excellent reporting. Uh, what I found in my intel career was that Al Jazeera's reporting actually did pretty well in aligning with what the facts were that we did, you know, uncovered through classified sources. Uh, are there any other news sources that you've come across that uh, people should maybe tune into if they want to learn more about the situation? Yeah, the best coverage, unfortunately, is uh, done by citizen journalists from Myanmar using Facebook and Twitter. Okay. Uh, there are some uh, Myanmar Facebook and Twitter users who uh, write in English. There are some, and a majority of them are in Burmese, obviously. So yeah. I try to... Uh, sort of select some and then share with my Facebook uh, audience uh, in that sense. So you can go to my Facebook as well <laughs> okay. if you want to follow some of the threads from between the journalists who from Al Jazeera and BBC and New York Times, Washington Post, and here citizen journalists are reporting. Yeah. And the other is a Myanmar uh, news organization like Myanmar Now, uh, Frontier Myanmar, Irawadi, all of these uh, uh, Myanmar-based uh, including Democratic Voice of uh, Burma, DVB, and they're doing a pretty good job in, in, in that. So um, I, I, I have to, you have to kind of a little bit go beyond conven- traditional convenient media sure. outlet and deep search a little bit in a Google and to find out more uh, how Myanmar media is covering. All right. Well, uh, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our show today. Uh, Professor Tuan Min, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thank you for having me, and thank you for telling the American, uh, the public in general to know about the case, the crisis yeah. in Myanmar. Uh, so, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, we're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., And again, if you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. I'll find experts who can join us to address your topic. Have a fantastic Wednesday and a great finish to your week. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Ninety-five point one. The One.